Well, good morning once again, and what a joy it's been to sing the Lord's praises together. And I was just thinking that as we were singing these songs of those lyrics, I could sing of your love forever. And uh, sometimes I feel like our praise times are just far too short. One of these days we're just going to get in this room and have a five-hour praise set and just worship our hearts out to the Lord until we, we drop over. And uh, But it's just been such a sweet time. Um, I did notice something a little bit unusual is that ever since I got my new glasses, uh, I've been having these uh, really a lot more deeper thoughts about God. So, um, so uh, if my messages improve, it's not me; it's it's uh, it's the gospel, and then secondly, it's my glasses. So, um, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. It's going to be our text for this morning. It is just amazing how the Lord has been teaching us and just instructing us as a church about His grace and living by the gospel, how the gospel is not just central to how we begin the Christian life. The gospel is central to how we live the Christian life. The gospel is central to every day of our Christian life. We live every single day by this great and glorious truth that God accepts us on the basis of Christ and Christ's sacrifice for us, that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, and God accepts us and loves us because we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And we've just been rejoicing in this truth. We've just been learning about the implications of that and how that central truth of Christ's death and resurrection and the freedom and forgiveness that comes through this good news, how it impacts all of life and how it um, changes the way that we serve and that we live and that we grow and how it is central, not just to how we start the, the Christian life and entering the kingdom, but how we grow and how we mature in the kingdom. And it's just been such an exciting time. Um, I think the Lord is just, for whatever reason, He has been so good to us in these last number of weeks and we have just been drinking in these glorious truths, and the good news that, that we want to proclaim and that we want to let our hearts rejoice in this morning is a very simple truth, and I told it to you last week, I'll set it before you again. We are rejoicing in the glorious truth that God is the greatest giver in the world today. God is the greatest giver in the world today. He is the most generous giver. He is the most lavish giver. He is um, the most sacrificial giver. His heart is not just to give enough. His heart is to lavish sinners with favor and grace that they do not deserve and they have not earned. God is a generous giver. And last week we just looked at some verses that talk about the generosity of God. Uh, we looked at uh, James 1.5, which says, If you, any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously. God's heart is when we come to him in prayer, is not just, yeah, I'll give you enough, I, I'll give you enough to give by, but his heart is if you come to me, I will give to you generously because you are my child and I accept you on the basis of Christ and what he has done on your behalf. Matthew 7.11 says, If you... Being evil, know how to good, give, get, good, give good gifts to your children. How much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? 
And if you think about it, the gospel is all about God being a giving God, God being a generous God, and God being the greatest giver in the world today. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. It is God giving. It is man receiving what we do not deserve, what we have not earned, and that we cannot be deserving of. Now the good news that we are trying to bring to our hearts and bring to our understanding is this Precious truth is so precious. Is that God being a giving God, God being a generous God, He has given to us lavishly in the past. He has sent His Son to die on our behalf. He has put all of our sins on Christ and punished Christ in our place. He has forgiven us of all our sins. He has washed them away as far as the east is from the west. He has removed them from us. He has adopted us. He has brought us into His family. He has reconciled us unto Himself. He has placed us in a standing in grace. He has justified us, declared us to be righteous and not guilty, even though we are sinful and foul and defiled. He has pounded the gavel and He has said, You are not guilty. I accept you on the basis of Christ. And He has clothed us with Christ's righteousness. And all of that has taken place in the past. And we rejoice in that and we look back to what God has done and we, we let our hearts be filled with praise because God has done wonderful things and God has done amazing things and how He has saved us and how He has sent His Son to die for us. But the good news that we celebrate this morning and that we want to bring a shift to our attention is that God is not done giving. He's not done giving. There are amazing aspects of His grace in the past that we explore and we rejoice in. Yes, God has done it. Amazing things. And we sing praise to God because of what He has done. But when we search His Word, we find that God's not done. He has not only promised to give to us in the past, He continues to give to us in the present and in the future. You know, if you think of the, the hymn, Amazing Grace, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful song because it goes back to the past. It says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. You saved a wretch like me. It goes back to the past and we go, the, God's grace is so amazing in the past. But then it turns to the future, doesn't it? It says, The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my hope and portion be as long as life endures. God's grace isn't just something I celebrate in the past is something I look forward to in the future. And what's the implications of all this? The implications of all this is that we live each day as a receiver, not a giver. We are receivers. We began our Christian lives receiving God's grace, receiving His forgiveness, receiving His acceptance, receiving the payment that was made on our behalf, for by grace we have been saved, not of our works, that no one should boast. But then we also continue in our Christian life receiving. And we never become a giver. We never come to the point in our Christian lives where we say, well, now I'm strong and now I'm mature and now I've grown big enough that now I can give to you, God. And I don't need your grace. I can do it on my own. I can be disciplined enough, 
hardworking enough, strong enough, I can do it now. No, every day of our Christian lives, we live every day by His grace. And we continue to receive what He gives to us. And so we've titled last week and this week, the message is, Be a Receiver. And I'm just asking you to examine your hearts and your lives. Are, are you a good receiver? Do you come to God every day and, and, and ask Him to, to give to you? Do you come to Him with not trying to give to Him your perfect Christian life? Not trying to give to Him, Lord, I was so consistent with all my spiritual disciplines. Lord, I'm going to give it to you and now you're obligated to bless me and you must be so impressed by what a good Christian I am. No, do you come to Him with, with, an, with an empty hand and, Lord... All I have to give to you is this sinful heart. All I have to give to you is my weary soul. All I have to give to you is my trials and my anxieties and my difficulties. But Lord, I need to receive from you. And if you've read the Psalms, you know they're all about this. You can't read the Psalms without seeing this. How the Psalms are all about, Lord, I need to receive from you. Lord, you have to give to me. It's all about, hear my prayer, hear my cry. Lord, don't turn me away. Lord, I've had difficult circumstances and difficult trials. Lord, lead me. Lord, teach me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, cleanse me. Lord, restore me. Lord, lift me up. Give me a heart of joy. I'm anxious. I'm weary. I'm depressed. I'm I'm confused. I need you to show up in my life. Hear me right here in the here and now. And the Psalms testify to how when we as God's children cry out to him in this way and we call on him to give to us, we don't try to give to him. That God's heart is, you don't need to manipulate me. You don't have to twist my arm. I sent my son to die for you. If you come to me as a receiver, I'll not just give you what you need. I'll give you far beyond what you need because I'm a generous God. And at the heart of it, God is a giver. And so we're just asking, shepherding our hearts, are are we living as receivers, not as givers? Are we trying to come to give to God? Are we trying to come to get from Him? And what I've been learning, this has been just kind of rocking my Christian life. And as I come to God, what I've been learning is that He never turns me away. I mean, praise God. I mean, he never, I come to him with empty hands and, and Lord, all I have to offer you is my weary life and my broken heart and my, my life that doesn't seem to make sense. And Lord, I just need you to show up. I need you to do something here. And, and he never turns me away. His heart toward me is, Dan, I accept you because my son's died in your place. And when I see you, I see the righteousness of my son. And you call upon me, you ask, and you will receive. You seek, and you will find. You knock, and the door shall be opened. Because I am a loving father who is generous toward his children. I just ask you this morning, is that your, is that your view of God? Is your view of God a biblical one? And do you see him as a God of generous grace? The nation of Israel in Psalm 50, they were, they were so busy trying to give to God. They were trying, so busy with the sacrificial system and doing all of these um, sacrificing animals and 
trying to do their duty. And God said in Psalm 50 that I don't rebuke you for that because I prescribe that in my word. But what I do correct you on is your attitude and your perspective as you go about these things. You're coming to me with the attitude of by doing these things, you're doing me a favor. That you're somehow meeting some need of mine and you're giving to me. And here's what God said to the nation of Israel in Psalm chapter Psalm 50, verse 9. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your foals. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? God says to Israel, You think you're doing me a favor by bringing me these bulls and goats? You think you're giving to me? I own everything. You think I'm hungry? I own the world. I own every animal that's ever existed. I've created them. You think you're giving to me? Here's how you glorify me, the Lord says. Verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. God says to Israel, you know what? Stop trying to give to me. I don't need anything you have to give. I own it all. Here's how you glorify me. Call upon me. I will rescue you, and my glory will be put on display. We come to God not as givers. We come to God to receive. And brothers and sisters, I just ask you to to bring these truths to your heart and bring them to application to your life. Do you really think that God needs your perfect, consistent Bible reading plan? He just needs you to do that. He's just so impressed when you do that, when you... Have your quiet time every morning and don't miss a day. Wow. Man, I just, I got to bless that Christian. So disciplined. Do you really think God needs our service? Do you think he's just so impressed by how diligent we are? Oh, man, you know, Cornerstone Bible Church. Gosh, I'm so glad you did that ministry because if you didn't do it, gosh, I don't know what I would do. Kingdom would fall apart. You see, God says, I don't need what you have to give. I own it all. But you need what I have to give. Call upon me and I will rescue you. John Piper said, how do you glorify an overflowing, rushing fountain? You glorify a beautiful fountain by bringing your little piddly cup of water and throwing it in. Gosh, I added to the fountain. Did you see my contribution? Did you see what I have to give? You glorify a rushing, overflowing fountain by coming with your thirsty soul and by drinking. And drinking until your heart is satisfied. And when your heart is satisfied, you're like that Coca-Cola commercial where it's ice cold and you're drinking that thing and you're all sweaty and it goes down and you take it off and and you give that satisfaction, you say, ah, so good. 
And Piper says that when you make that, that sound of satisfaction, that's worship. Because God is glorified as we receive from Him, not as we give to Him. Now we're trying to see how the Bible teaches this. And uh, I've done some reflection this week, and my wife has as well. And we don't want this to turn into another thing that you're supposed to do, okay? So we did the whole Martha Mary thing, and, you know, we don't want to be Martha's. We want to be Mary. And some of you may be getting the impression that our message is it's not, you know, bam, be a man anymore, but it's bam, be a Mary, okay? And you just got to be a Mary. That's what you got to do. And, um, you know, like, I was realizing my own heart, like, I can't even be a Mary. I mean, my heart is so restless, and I have so many things, so many thoughts. My, I can't even, like, in my own strength, quiet my heart and just be still before Jesus. I have to receive even that from the Lord. God has to give me even that. I have to be a receiver all the way. I can't do that on my own. And we've just been wrestling through this and trying to see its implications in our life. And where I want to take you is Matthew 18, because I believe this is the clearest and the simplest illustration that Jesus gave to demonstrate this whole concept that we are receivers and not givers. It is just the simplest and clearest illustration. I just want to set it before you this morning and Ask that the Holy Spirit would drive it to your hearts. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Note here that Jesus is answering a question. The question is simply, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the most mature? Who is the spiritual example? Who is progressed in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, I do believe that this question was motivated by pride from the disciples, and yet I believe at the same time that the question, in some senses, is a legitimate one. Um, how do we, once we're in the kingdom of heaven, how do we progress? Once we're Christians, how do we grow to be godly Christians or mature Christians? And they're asking this question. And at no point does Jesus say, you know what, there's no such thing as greatness in the kingdom. At no point Jesus says, he doesn't say, once you're in the kingdom, everyone's equal and there's no such thing as progression or growing or maturing. He doesn't say that. He does acknowledge that there is such a thing, that once you're in the kingdom, you should be progressing and you should be maturing and you should be growing. But he defines a very surprising way to get there. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, some people would answer that the key to greatness in the kingdom of heaven is being productive. The more you do, the greater you are. In fact, I think American Christianity, this is how we would define spiritual greatness. That guy, he does so much. And we would look at pastors and we would ask how many Bible studies do they teach? How many mission trips have they been on? How many people have they discipled? How many people have they won to Christ? How many books have they written? Productivity is the key to spiritual greatness. 
Other people will say it's influence. It's how many people have you influenced? How many people have you impacted? How many people have you drawn in? Uh, how many people have your books reached? How many people have you impacted for Christ? Key to spiritual greatness is influence. And the more influence a person has as a Christian, the more we tend to think that they are great in the kingdom. Another way that we tend to think about spiritual greatness is academic achievements. Oftentimes in the church today, the more letters a man has after his name, the greater we think he is. If he has a master's in divinity, a master's in theology, a doctorate in theology, we tend to think the more letters he has after his name, the more Greek and Hebrew he knows, the more conversant he is with academia, that is the key to spiritual greatness. Now, would you know here that Jesus is going to teach us very clearly and very specifically on what is the key to spiritual greatness and how do we grow in the kingdom of heaven once we are in the kingdom? And in verse 2, he says, he called a child to himself and set them before him. The word uh, child here is the term pideon. It describes an infant. Most likely here, the child was one to two years of age. It describes a child who's old enough to walk and even to run, but not much more than that. I was thinking about following in Jesus' footsteps this morning and getting a kid out of Pebbles Ministry and setting him before you here. And I thought twice because I was like, kid will probably freak out and ruin the message. And but So just imagine it, okay? There's a, there's a child from Pebbles. We just pulled him out here. He's in front of us. He's got cookie crumbs all over his face, and he's you know crying because he doesn't like Pebbles and and just, just picture before, we set a child before us, one to two years of age. And this is the illustration that Jesus gives. He says in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says to us, do you want to know what true spiritual greatness is? Do you want to know what true spiritual maturity looks like? Do you want to know who is progressing in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the spiritual example? It is the believer who, are you ready for this? It is the believer who is the most childlike in his faith. It is the believer who is most like a child. Jesus says, if you want to see spiritual greatness, if you want to know who is the godly example, this is the pattern to follow. It's not an, a super productivity or super influence. It's not a super academic achievement. It is the Christian who is most like a child. In verse 3, Jesus says, this is how you become a Christian. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not even enter the kingdom. Unless you are like a child, you won't even come into the kingdom and you can't even become a Christian. And then verse 4, he says, once you're in the kingdom, this is how you progress. This is how you become Great. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is 
the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Note here again, Jesus never says, no, you guys have it all wrong. There's no such thing as greatness in the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't answer in that way. He does acknowledge that there is such a thing as greatness, but that greatness is achieved through walking the path of a child. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Whatever lesson he is trying to communicate must be very important because this single illustration becomes the dominant picture that defines the entire chapter. Jesus refers to it over and over again. Verse 5, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Verse 6, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Verse 14, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Whatever the point is, it is very important because Jesus uses this one illustration over and over again to define a Christian. And he says over and over again, you know who a Christian is? He is a child. He is a little one. We are little ones, and we never become big ones. We are children. What's the point here? So sorry to burst the parent's bubble this morning. The point isn't that the child is cute or lovable or that the child should be given much attention. This was a Jewish society. It wasn't child-centered. They basically saw children as unimportant, as insignificant. The point that Jesus is making here is very simple and it is very clear. It is this. The child is completely and totally helpless. The child is completely and totally helpless. The child is completely and totally dependent. The child is completely and totally in need of a power that is greater than he or she is. A child can contribute nothing. A child can't pay for anything. A child can give nothing. A child can earn nothing. A child can do nothing to take care of himself or herself. Again, we're not talking about five-year-olds or nine-year-olds. We're talking about one or two-year-olds. They are completely and totally helpless. They need everything done for them. And the only thing that they can contribute and give to society or to the home is their needs. All they have to bring to the table is needs. I need to be fed. I need to be protected. I need to be taught. I need to receive Love, I need to be entertained. I need a roof put over my head. I need safety. I need security. That's all they have to bring. They're vulnerable. And if they are not taken care of, they will die. The child is completely and totally helpless and needs everything done for them. They can contribute nothing for themselves. And if you've ever had children in your home, a one or two-year-old, you know that the only thing that that child contributes is they mess up everything. I've raised four children, and we've gone through four times this age, one to two-year-olds. They don't clean up. 
They don't help with a table. They don't vacuum. They don't do laundry. All they do is cry for stuff. Just feed me, help me, hold me, take care of me. And then they just, you know, you feed them and then they just go around and just mess up stuff, throwing stuff all around. And that's all they do. And Jesus takes this child and he sets them before these adults and he says, you know who you are? You're a child. That's who you are. You need everything done for you. You have nothing to contribute to the kingdom. You have no resources that you can bring to the table. All you have to bring to God is a number of needs that are urgent. And if God does not take care of you, you will die. And to be honest, all you really do bring to the table is you mess up things a lot. And God has to clean up after you. That's all you are. And Jesus says, this is how you come into the kingdom. You realize you're a child. I, don't, I can't give to God. God has to give to me. God has to do everything for me. That's how you enter the kingdom. And then once you're in the kingdom, this is how you progress in spiritual maturity. Is you grow in that understanding of how helpless you are. You see, the progression here is not we start off as children and to become great in the kingdom, we become adults. And we realize, well, now I can do it on my own. The progression here is Jesus says, verse 4, you start off as a child. And as you grow to maturity, you just become more childlike. You grow in your understanding of how helpless you are. You grow in your understanding of how dependent you are. You grow in your understanding of how I need God to do everything for me. And that's the Psalms again. Hear me. Rescue me, deliver me, forgive me, raise me up, encourage me, give me joy. God, you have to do this in my life or I'm done for. And Jesus says that's maturity. Is you realize you're a little one. You're not a big one. You're a little one. You need everything done for you. And this is the path of true spiritual greatness. You know, I talked to my three-year-old daughter, Mia, and some of you have talked to her. Kind of a funny girl. And she, um, you know, she's talking now. She's articulating thoughts. And, and so, like, I said, I've been saying to her, you know, Mia, who, who taught you how to talk? And she looks at me straight in the eye, and no joke, she smiles at me, and she says, Me. I don't know. There's some, I mean, I love my daughter, but there's something in my heart where you know, I'm a little offended by that. Like, are you serious? You did it? Don't you get it? I did everything for you. I raised you. I bathed you. I clothed you. You know, I wiped your bottom. I taught you how to go to the bathroom. I put food on the table. I put the roof over your head. I bought you your Care Bear videos. 
Okay, I bought you your stuffed animals. I entertained you. I bought you your bed. Why is your room pink? It's because I painted it. It's why I did everything for you. I did everything for you. And I did it because I love you. You're my child. How will I forsake you or abandon you? I did it because I love you, and it's my joy to do all of this for you. And you're going to look at me and say, I did it? You know, I just can't help but think that sometimes this is the way we are with the Lord. I mean, the Lord is like, don't you understand? I did it all. I sent my son to die for you. I forgave your sins. I raised them from the dead. I justified you. I cleansed you. I restored you. I lifted you up. I regenerated your heart. I gave you the Holy Spirit. I did it all. And I keep doing it all. I keep protecting you and providing for you and strengthening you. And I'm there for you every day of your life. And you're going to look at me and look me straight in the eye and say, I did it? Are you serious? Don't you understand who you are? You're a child. You need everything done for you. And God says, it's my joy to do everything for you. Because I am a father and you are my child. And I delight in you. Jesus' point in this passage is that we are completely helpless. We are completely dependent we are, can contribute nothing. We must live our lives completely as receivers and not givers. We must live our lives in complete dependence upon the Lord's grace. And the one who is greatest in the kingdom is the one who understands his weakness in the most profound way. The weaker you understand you are, and the more you cry out for the Lord to meet you, that's spiritual maturity. That's progression. Because you're leaving behind yourself and you're giving yourself over to the Lord. Galatians 4, verses 6 to 7 says, We cry out to the Lord and we cry out, Abba, Father. And some of us have this uh, picture of the Lord. The way we come to the Lord is kind of, we've Kind of the sound of music view of fatherhood. And we come to the Lord and it's kind of formal. It's kind of father. And we think he expects us to be in line before he'll embrace us. And I think that's why Paul used the word Abba before father. Because Abba is kind of this, it's kind of this language that all kids have some sort of language like this. You know, in English, it's Papa or Dada. In, um, in Korean, it's Appa. I don't know what it is about in other languages, but there, there's this universal sound like that, Abba, where little children come to their father and they just cry out, Dada, Papa, Abba, Father. And it's more this, this kind of term. It's not this formal father. It's Abba, 
Father. And God says, I accept you like this and have this relationship with you because of what my son has done on your behalf. Now, a question I know many of you are thinking, because I know that you know your Bibles and you're thinking through this, is, Dan, I understand that we're to be receivers and not givers. I understand we're children, not adults. I understand God needs to take care of us, and we can't take care of ourselves. But aren't we called to give? I mean, doesn't the Bible call us to serve and to give and to sacrifice and to work and to discipline ourselves? Isn't that biblical teaching? Aren't we called to repent and through an act of our wills turn away from sin and turn to God? And how does all of that harmonize with what we're learning about being receivers and not givers? And I just want to conclude our time by showing you some passages. They're so sweet of how in, even in these things we are still receivers and not givers. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're just going to answer the question, does the Bible talk about serving? Does it talk about giving? Does it talk about sacrificing and repenting? And the answer to all of these things is yes. The Bible talks about all of these things, but if you look carefully at the text... It will talk about these things in the context of us receiving from God, not us giving to God. For example, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. If each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So someone's going to look at this verse and say, See, Dan, we're called to serve, right? We're called to give. We're called to be involved in ministry. We are to be givers. And they miss the entire emphasis of the verse. Why do you serve? Why do you give? Why are you active in ministry? Well, it's because you've received. Verse 10. Each one of us has received a special gift. And we are good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, we haven't deserved to receive this gift, but God has given it to us that we may serve the body of Christ. And then in verse 11, he says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So God not only gives you the gift, God gives you the strength to operate the gift. And so all the way through, you're receiving from God. You receive the gift by grace, and then you receive by grace the strength to operate the gift. And so, yes, is the Bible calling us to serve? Absolutely. Is the Bible calling us to be engaged in ministry? Absolutely. But are we even in service giving or are we receiving? Well, this text will say we're receiving. We're receiving the gift. We're receiving the strength to operate the gift. And the end result is verse 11. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You know, if you've received everything in your service, in the end you say, God gets all the glory because all I did was receive. I mean, what do I have that I haven't received? How can I take credit for anything that God has done? God gave me the gift, and then God gave me the strength to operate the gift. Am I really going to stand up after all of that and say, yeah, look at me, man. I gave so much to God's church. You check that out? What a good job I did? Am I really going to do that? No, because I understand that everything is just, I'm just receiving. And so God 
gets all the glory. Look at Second uh, Corinthians chapter nine, verse six. Let's talk about giving. Uh, people are going to say, "Well, you know, I thought we're called to give. Aren't we supposed to give to God? I mean, aren't we supposed to sacrifice our finances? Aren't we supposed to uh, sacrifice financially and give to the church? Aren't we supposed to be givers as Christians and not receivers?" And Paul talks about this, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Now I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves the cheerful giver. So, and all of you are saying, there you go, Dan, it's an LTF verse. Okay, we're, we're supposed to give. We're supposed to sacrifice. We're supposed to be the givers to the church, and we're supposed to be like the Macedonians, and we're supposed to sacrifice and give generously. We're the givers, right? We're not the receivers. My answer to that is look at the next verse, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything you may have in abundance for every good deed. Paul says, look, Yes, I mean, your hands are giving. You're, it's your pocketbook. It's your money. It's your finances. Yes, there is that aspect which you're giving. But you know what? When you're giving, that's just a means for God to give to you. As you give, what God is doing is he's giving to you. And he's giving to you in a way that is far more lavish and far more abundant than you giving to him. I mean, just look at the superlatives in that verse. God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Paul says, look, you think you're giving to God, but God's giving to you. Your giving is a means by which God puts his grace on display in your life. And you know, if you understand that, you know what you become? You become a cheerful giver. Because you understand, I'm not giving to the Lord. The Lord's giving to me. This is a means by which God puts his display in my, his grace on display in my life. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. What about work? Aren't we called to work in the Christian life? Aren't we called to be diligent and not lazy? And aren't we called to be hard workers and to be disciplined? And we say, absolutely. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Paul says, I labored even more than all of them. You say, there you go, Dan. It's hard work, right? The Christian life is work. It is diligence. It is giving to God our disciplined lifestyle. It's our labor. It's our striving. And we would say, absolutely. But look at the context. Around that phrase, I labored even more than all of them. Look at how many times Paul mentions the grace of God. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul says, yes, I'm working hard. This isn't some kind of mystical thing where I just let go and just, you know, I'm not involved in this. Yes, my will is involved. My life is involved. But you know what? In the end, I'm receiving. I'm not giving. 
God is putting His grace on display in my life and His grace is a dynamic, active influence and it changes my life. And yes, it results in a diligent lifestyle, but that is not the end. That is, the, that is not the, the essence of it. The essence of it is receiving, and this is the way it's fleshed out in my life. Even in work and in discipline and growing in these things, we are receivers. We are not givers. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Jesus said this. In everything I showed you that, this is Paul speaking, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So someone's going to say, there you go, Dan, we're supposed to be givers, right? That verse is all about we're supposed to give and not receive. So we're supposed to be the givers. Look at the verse carefully. Who in this verse receives the blessing? Is it the giver or is it the receiver? Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The one who gives is the one who receives the blessing. So you're at lunch with your friend and the check comes and you get in a fight over who's going to pay for the meal. The biblical way to resolve the argument. Give me the check. I want the blessing. Okay? If I pay, I get the blessing because it's more blessed to give than to receive. If you pay, you get the blessing. So I'm selfish. I want to pay for it. It's even in giving, it is receiving. One last element of this. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. What about repentance? Aren't we called to repent? Aren't we called to turn from our sins and to turn from God? Aren't we through an act of our wills supposed to make that 180 degree turn away from our sinful lifestyle and to turn to God? Isn't the Christian life the life of continual repentance? And we would say yes. But look at how Paul describes repentance. Romans 2.4 Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Some of us have a view of repentance that repentance means that I need to work my way into God's favor. I need to do it I have to turn from the sin. I have to show God that I'm serious about Him and then He'll accept me. And what you don't understand is that when you are repenting of that sin, it is only because God has already sought you out and that He is being kind to you. That He has initiated your turning to Him. It's like the prodigal son in Luke 15. He thought that he was running to God and coming back to God, coming back to the Father. And really, it was the Father who was running to him. And even when we repent, 
It is receiving the kindness of God in our lives where God has initiated this. In the end, what we are saying is that we are just receivers. We're just children. We are little ones. We can bring nothing to the table. All we can do is come to our Abba Father and ask Him to give to us. And the good news is that He delights to do so because of what Christ has done on our behalf. So I'll leave you with one of my favorite illustrations from C.H. Spurgeon who said this. Imagine a tiny fish being very thirsty, being afraid of drinking the river dry. The river keeps saying to the fish, poor little fish, my stream is sufficient for thee. Or imagine a mouse in the midst of all the grain of Egypt when they were fullest after seven years of plenty. Imagine that one mouse complaining that it might die of famine. Cheer up, says Pharaoh, poor mouse. My grain is sufficient for thee. Imagine a man standing on a mountain and saying, I breathe so many cubic feet of air in a year, I'm afraid that I shall ultimately inhale all the oxygen which surrounds the globe. Surely the earth on which the man would stand might reply, my atmosphere is sufficient for thee. Does it not make unbelief seem altogether ridiculous? Our great Lord feeds all the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle on the hills and guides the stars and upholds all things by the power of his hands. If our needs were a thousand times larger than they are, they would not approach the vastness of his power to provide. And he says to us as his children, my grace is sufficient for thee. He says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be there. Call upon me and I will rescue you. And in the end, we will be his beloved children. Let's bow our hearts in prayer and give thanks to the Lord. Our Abba Father, thank you so much for your amazing grace in our lives, the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are accepted, that we are loved, that we are forgiven and free because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. We thank you that although we come with thirsty hearts and we desire to drink, that, Lord, your grace is ever abundant. It is sufficient for us because it is infinite. So, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would teach us just to be children, to pursue greatness in the kingdom, by pursuing a childlike faith, being dependent upon you, bringing to you all of our needs, all of our messes, all of our troubles. We pray that you would meet us and give to us and be glorified in your giving. We thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen.